This is Words That Move Me, the podcast where movers and shakers like you get the information and inspiration you need to navigate your creative career with clarity and confidence. I am your host, Master Mover, Dana Wilson. And if you're someone that loves to learn, laugh, and is looking to rewrite the starving artist story, then sit tight, but don't stop moving, because you're in the right place. Hello, hello, my friends. How are you doing today? (laughs) I may sound a little different in this episode, and that is because I am talking to actual people right now. Well, actual pixel, pixeled people. This is the first ever live Zoom podcast with a live Zoom audience. Thank you all for being here today. And thank you all that are listening that might have missed this live moment. Um, this, is, this is a great time for firsts. I'm excited to be making this first Zoom podcast with you because at the moment, um, we are uh, about 24 hours um, into having a 46th president-elect. Mr. Joe Biden has won the presidential election. The crowd goes wild. Um, But I think there are some other really important things to point out. Kamala Harris is our first woman vice president. She is our first person of color. We also have our first second gentleman, who is Doug. Uh, We have a first dog again in in the White House. And this is also the first ever Thank you for bringing this to my attention, Riley. This is our first ever rescue dog in the White House. And I think that is important. Um, So that's where we're at, everybody in in the world today. Um, And I'm really, really jazzed to be sharing this morning with you. Um, We're going to treat this just like a normal episode in that we will start with wins and then I'll ask for yours. I'll give you a moment to take the uh, to start thinking about your wins. And I'll tell you that my win this week, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it election free. My win this week is that I danced three times this week for no reason other than fun, release. And the simple fact that dance seemed a better option than words in that moment. Three times this week, and it felt so good, you guys. One of those moments was in a silent Zoom disco. I don't know if anybody has participated in such a thing. But the one and only Riley Higgins hosted a silent Zoom disco. And from what I understand, she will be hosting one every Sunday in perpetuity forever moving forward. And now, Riley, that I've said it, you are (laughs) silently committed to that. (laughs) Um, Riley, do you want to say a little bit about the silent disco? What is it? What does it mean for people that have no idea what that is? Uh, Yeah. So silent disco in the, when you, in the real world, not in the Zoom world, is everyone has headphones on and listens to different playlists and dances together. We can't do that because of Corona, so I put it on the screen, and it's just a place to be yourself fully with other screens in the world and dance to your own music, and I give improv prompts halfway all the way through the thing, but it's really fun, and it was fun to dance with you, Dana. Oh, it was so much fun. And your improv prompts were so great. I think that this type of dance is accessible to anyone. The prompts weren't like, 
head spin for four eight counts or it, it was all very human range of motion anybody could be dancing these dances you dance it to your music uh, I, I did find it really really cool to watch the contrasts in the world my audioscape was like probably queen um like i think six out of the 10 songs we danced to that day for me were queen so i was like raging um and but but some other people moving really really slowly dancing to some super serene maybe like chanting i don't know um but it was really nice to see all the worlds collide and all, oh, it was so much so much fun great dance okay now as my listeners out there in the in the listen sphere are thinking of their wins. I'm going to share a couple from the Zoom room today. Um, this is really exciting. Rebecca made cookies last night and had one for breakfast. That's the type of world I want to live in. <laughs> um, oh, Rachel got time to read this week. Congratulations, Rachel. I started reading a new book this week. It is all about dance and politics in New York City between 1929 and 1942. It is fascinating. I will definitely be sharing about it in a must-read list coming up later. Um, oh, Andrea, this is such a good win. She has re-sparked her creative juices and reconnected with old friends. That is absolutely something to celebrate. I love this. Ooh, Jess Franco. All right. She has prepared a training schedule for November and reached out to friends to identify her strengths. That was actually a really cool thing. I got an email from Jess um, asking, hey, like, would you be willing to share a moment uh, that you remember me and what you think about me in, in that moment in your memory? Um, I'm probably botching that prompt, Jess. <laughs> Jess, do you, wanna, do you wanna share actually what that prompt was, this email that you put out to your friends? That was such a cool thing to receive. Yeah, it, had, um, it was an exercise to identify you at your, at your strengths. So reaching out to like 10 or 20 friends and just asking, a moment where they remember you at your best and what it is about that moment that they remember. A feeling together, the experience itself, the way you were, the way you were together. Um, just trying to identify things that I might not notice as my own strengths because everybody's perspectives are a little different. So it's nice to know what the world thinks of you. And then maybe you can identify new pieces and tools uh, that you can use even more so and, and develop even more and or recognize where you can bring someone else into your world to fulfill any gaps that you might have. So self-reflection at your best, identifying strength through your friend's eyes as well as your own awareness. Super win. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Huge encouragement there. Do it. Put it out into the world. Um, I'm going to share one more win from my Zoom chat because this one appears in the form of a haiku. You do receive extra credit bonus points also out there in the listen sphere if you can present your win in the form of a haiku. Stephanie, this one's yours. Win. Veggie roasting. Beets in my toaster oven. Too big. Too many. Too Big, too many. Many is, yeah, many is a two-syllable word. Great job, Stephanie. Super win, super haiku. Do we have any more haikus? Did I miss any? Raise your hand and flap it wildly if I missed your haiku. Alyssa Dinka. <laughs> oh, great. Awesome. I'm checking your work before I say it out loud. So, wait. Here's my wins haiku. Got it, got it. 
Here's my wins haiku. Celebrating, taking space, sharing, sharing together. <gasps> nice job, Dinka. Oh my gosh, these are fun. Did I miss anybody else's haiku? Okay, homework assignment, homework assignment. Now everybody at home, you go, what is your win? And silently, we can all think of the song. Here it comes, the end, big finish, bam! Awesome, congratulations everybody and keep on winning, keep on crushing it. Um, I, I, I wanna quickly put a little magnifying glass on how easy it may seem to find wins when your side is winning. But I do think it's really important to remember that half of our country right now feels the way that you might have felt around this time four years ago. So it's a great opportunity to practice some compassion, openness and understanding, and to be looking for wins always, even when your team is losing. All right, with that, everybody, let's get into this Q&A episode. I am riveted. We're gonna start first with Oriana. Oriana, what's your question? Okay, hey. <laughs> What do you think? I know that you've said in the past that you don't know that much of mental health, but I still want to ask, um, what do you think that are the hardest things that dancers and choreographers have to manage regarding their mental health? And what do you think that they can, how can they improve it? Or what can they do to have a better mental health in the industry? Ah. That is a really, really good question. And you're right. I, because I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a person who's studied the brain, but I am a person that studies my feelings day in, day out, and it's where I make my art from. So I am always seeking to understand them better and to find ways of managing them and find ways of turning them into gold. Um, so I'll start by answering your question on kind of a, a global level and then I'll shrink it down to the dancer level. I think that the most important thing I've learned about my mental health and that uh, and the mental health of a lot of America is that it may be a problem to be constantly seeking just the positive end of the spectrum. We are really really motivated to prioritize happiness and all of the things that we think happiness will bring um, or will come along with it like the family, the spouse, the kids, the cool gigs, the lots of money, the car, the fancy clothes. Um, and first we know, because we've seen people with all of those things who are very unhappy, <laughs> that those are not, that those don't come hand in hand. But secondly, I think that by only pursuing the bright side, you're missing out on a really big portion and really important portion of life. And as artists, we know that some incredible work gets spawned from the darker side of the spectrum. Some of my favorite pieces don't have a bit to do with happiness. So my overall observation is that I think we would all do better and our work might do better if we embrace the full spectrum instead of simply um, pursuing the happy side all the time. 
Now, regarding dance specifically, I think the, um, I'll call him like <laughs> the mental mouse trap, these little traps that are set up for us around every corner. And by us, I do mean dancers. The, the mental mouse traps that are set up around all the corners are usually, or, or in my experience, are, um, these are my, free, my three favorites. And when I say favorites, I mean least favorites. Jealousy, imposter syndrome, which is basically another word for self-doubt. And maybe let's just start with those two. So for me, jealousy happens a lot because um, our work is visual work. So I see people. It's like, I wouldn't be jealous of other, if I were an accountant, maybe. I wouldn't be jealous of other accountants because I can't see their books. I don't know how they're doing or what they're doing. It's not like, you know, those numbers aren't running side by side all the time. But, you know, in, in, the, in a visual field like dance or other performing arts, you see other people's work. So you are holding yours to theirs, even maybe on a subliminal level. So I think that jealousy comes up for us a lot. And I think that we brush past it because for our whole lives, we've, told, don't, we've been told, don't be jealous. I'm just now learning the value of jealousy, using it as a map and trying to find within that jealousy, what is, what is the thing that I really want? What is that person doing that I am not? Um, usually it means there's a skill gap somewhere, something that I'm not quite doing yet that they are. Um, so I think jealousy can be a huge teacher, although it doesn't feel really good in the moment. I've gotten a lot better at not resisting it when it shows up, but actually really looking under the rug of it and trying to find out what's underneath there. Um, same is true for imposter syndrome. And I feel it all the time. I'm a person that has uh, an arguably decent resume to look at, you know? And even so, I am afraid that someday people will wake up and be like, oh, no, she's awful. She, that was all like a fluke. <laughs> uh, she didn't deserve any of that. Like all the time I feel um, like I don't deserve the seat at the table that I have. Um, and that I think also is kind of like a check engine light indicator that maybe there's something I even know about that I'm not doing. If I didn't know there was something missing, I wouldn't feel that way. If I thought that I knew all the things and was the greatest at all the things, I wouldn't have imposter syndrome. So that's me. The imposter syndrome is me like suspecting I'm not topped up in all the places that I'd like to be. So yes, imposter syndrome and jealousy, those are the two, uh, or I'll call them self-doubt and jealousy are the two negative emotions that I feel most often or have felt most often in my dance career. Um, that, that you guys might be facing up against as well. And I would encourage you to use them as check engine lights and an opportunity to look a little deeper at what might be going on in there. Does that help? Awesome. Okay, next up, Rebecca, what you got for me? Hello. Um, my question is, recently-ish, you shared a video of an unreleased series of dailies where you talk about you talk about your vow to not make meaningless work. And I'm curious what led you to that vow and like how <laughs> that vow is going since making that vow. Oh my God, you're an angel. Um, thank you for bringing that up. I 
took that vow uh, pretty shortly after, or was it before? Oh, my history. <laughs> oh, my self-history. <laughs> I was never bad at American history, but Dana history, that's another question. Um, so I took on my daily challenge for more than a year. It was wound up being over 400 days. And I stopped, I decided to stop doing daily. One day when I saw, you know, I, I, I have a slogan that's always be rolling. And so my camera was just constantly on. Everywhere I went, I was rolling. And if I, you know, I'd put the thing down and do the little jig. And even if I thought I was done, I would keep it rolling because something else might happen. So as I was reviewing the footage that day, I saw my face in between takes, in between moments. And I was so bummed <laughs> on what I was doing. I was not inspired. I was not vibrating at my usual, you know, sunshine and sparkles level. So I was like, okay, this, this might not be the thing. Um, so that I noticed on one day, then I kept going. I went for like one more week and I was like, okay, definitely it's time for a pause. Um, and in that pause, I went to art school, which is not an actual place. Uh, well it is, there are several art schools out there, but my art school was simply my husband, Daniel Reitz, who went to school for sculpture and then became a visual neuroscience super extraordinaire. Um, he's an optical engineer and rapid prototyper and, and, and. And musician, you guys. He's been cranking out some jams. So anyways, uh, my husband gave me kind of a crash course in art school. What he, he sort of boiled down his four-year art school experience into a couple weeks of like the most important people and things that you need to know about. And during that period, he showed me a documentary, uh, a small docu-short, I'll call it, about John Baldessari, who I have talked about on the podcast before. And John Baldessari has a, uh, a famous piece, a vow that he makes. Uh, and this is, by the way, in 1971. John Baldessari wrote over and over and over again, I will not make any more boring art. I will not make any more boring art. I will not make any more boring art. So I suppose um, I adopted that uh, mantra and that vow for myself and I decided that I wouldn't make any more um, meaningless art, which, which after 422 days, I can't say that every one of my pieces had a deep meaning. And I had sort of, def sort of defaulted to ones that didn't. They were simply silly. Now, this could turn into a TikTok conversation if you would like it to, but uh, silly dance seemed right there at the surface, and I got really good at silly dance. I could fart out a little 15-second silly dance faster than you can blink your eyes and it was no longer lighting me up so i decided to see if meaningful dance lit me up so that's where it came from really long way to answer the first part of your question second part of your question is do i still have that oh man i've really my mind is so strong <laughs> my mind has found a way because making meaningful art is hard it takes more time it takes more effort. It doesn't necessarily get more rewarded. And so my brain has found an offering for me that makes it easier for me to make silly art is that um, meaningless art can be meaningful to some. Intention doesn't necessarily mean impact. So I could intend with every fiber of my being that something be mean meaningful and an audience could think, oh, I don't really, next. And I could also just like have one of those 
farts of a piece that I think is meaningless and somebody might be profoundly impacted by that. So once I'd made that distinction for myself, I, I simply made the commitment to be deliberate in what I was making. If it was going to be silly, it was a decision that it be silly. If it was going to be meaningful, even if my audience didn't find it so, it was my decision that it meant something to me and I don't care what anybody else thinks. It's so, so the distinction for me just came, became the decision. Okay. Um, we're going to do Max next. What's up, Max? It's nice to see you, my friend. So good to see you. Something that we've talked about a lot is liking your reasons for doing something. And I feel like I have struggled with finding this boundary between liking my reasons for doing something and being defensive about why I'm doing something. Hmm. I found it very difficult to find this balance between supporting myself and the things that I do and feeling like I need to defend myself. So do you have any tips as to where to find that boundary and how to get out of that mindset of defensiveness? Okay, question. How do they, how do defensive and supported show up differently in terms of your body, like your actual behavior? What is, what is defensive Max behave like and what does supported Max behave like? Supported Max can exist in public, where if I feel really good about something I'm thinking about doing, or if I have an idea that I really like, then I feel like I'm able to create that in the presence of other people, because mm. I think it's a good idea. Okay. When there is, when I'm having like more defensive thoughts, there is a certain amount of doubt surrounding that where... I feel as though I'm trying to make myself like the reasons, even though I don't necessarily. Right. Because there's doubt there because your brain is like, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> okay. So what's the thought that makes you feel supported? Um, let's see. I guess the thought that makes me feel supported is just like what I'm doing is interesting and what I am doing is making me better or making the world better in some small way. And maybe in a big way. And maybe in a big way. And when you think that thought, how do you feel? Supported? Yeah. And when you feel supported, you go out into the world and how do you walk? How do you talk? How, what's like, if I was really uh, like, Oh my gosh, you guys, my husband and I have been very into Corvids lately. We watch The Crows. It's like our new favorite Corona, Corvid, COVID experience. But anyways, if I was a crow just flying around watching Max out there in the world, what would I notice about your behavior? What you're supported like self. I look comfortable mm -hmm. where I am able to sort of hold myself up. I'm not trying to hide in any way because I feel as though I am supported, but I don't need the support of other people to make me feel that way. I'm able to do that myself. Amazing. So the person that thinks 
what I'm doing, what I'm thinking is important in a big way, or, or it can be a little bit and can be really, really important. You feel supported. And when you feel supported, you go out into the world supported, believe it or not. Um, the, the difference in thinking that thought and thinking one that makes you feel defensive is, you know, the difference shows up in your actions and the way that you feel, but it stems from that thought. When you're, 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 thought that leads you to feel defensive is what? It's usually trying to make myself believe those same things where it's like oh. trying to make myself oh. believe that what I'm doing is beneficial. Or- oh, got it. Right. So you're fighting with yourself. <laughs> yep. And that's why you feel defensive because you're fighting. Max, have you read The Art of Learning? I haven't. This is mandatory reading for everybody out there. The author is a guy called Josh Waitskin. He is a child prodigy chess player, world champion, and a push hands Tai Chi world champion as well. Multi-disciplines, multi-champions, and he's like 20. Or or I don't know how old he was when he wrote this book, but he was a child prodigy prodigy child prodigy um, child prodigy chess player. And then I think by the time he was 18, he had won a national push hands title. Anyways, one of my favorite takeaways from the book is this concept of being a blade of grass in a hurricane. The winds around you can be wailing and big, big, strong trees will be snapping, but you can just be flexy and nimble and your, and your mind can be the wind and it could be like, and you can be like, it's cool. I'm just a little blade of grass and you don't need to fight the wind. You don't need to fight with yourself. You could just blow. You could identify, oh, here I am fighting with myself and that's okay. These winds will pass and I will feel supported once I decide to think that what I'm, what I'm doing is important. So roll with it. That's the other awesome, like it's the fundamental, like it is the, uh, uh, the, like the ethos. I mean, that's the wrong word. Whatever. It's the, it's the nug- mom's laughing at me. She's like, God bless. Find the words, honey. Um, my mom is in the call today. Shout out mom. Thanks for being here. Uh, I think like the underlying, underlying principle of Tai Chi is to be like a ball in a socket. Any force that strikes you rolls off instead of meeting it with equal force. You just roll. Um, and that, and that is just such a beautiful principle. I think we could all get a, get a lot out of adopting something similar. Okay. Um, I think next up is Alyssa. Um, my question is, if you can, can you share about your love story with Lockie? Like, how did you meet? How did you start dating, like training? And like, how, did you, how do you use Locking now professionally? Uh, wow. Thank you for bringing Locking to the podcast. I don't think I've ever talked about my love affair with locking here on the podcast. Think of what a great question. Thank you so much. Okay. Let's rewind. The year is 2005 and a half. Um, on Lancashire Boulevard is, was, was, well, is at the time located at Millennium Dance Complex and the Dome. 
I was 18 years old and some change, and I was taking as many dance classes as humanly possible. I took everything that Marty Kadelka ever taught. I took all the Misha Gabriel, all the Nick Bass, you name it. Also, shout out J.R. Taylor. I miss your class. Um, and Tony Basil used to take Marty Kadelka's class religiously. Tony Basil, by the way, if you don't know, is a living legend. Um, she is the woman that sings Hey Mickey, but she is also so, so, so much more. She single-handedly bridged the gap between street styles and classical ballet specifically, but other more formal dance styles. Um, and she brought them to the forefront. She brought them to the mainstream. She's, you know, she's the reason why we see those things on TV. Um, I'll link to a couple of my favorite Tony Basil performances in the show notes to this episode. So Tony Basil would take Marty's class and um, she at the time, you know, she's older than most people in Marty's class and Marty's style, it, although it looks very pedestrian, is not easy at all. His ear is insane and his style is is challenging. It's also very far from Tony Basil's personal style, but she loves a challenge and she loved to put herself in class. Um, and to my understanding, this is how this transaction worked out. She asked Marty for some privates coaching on this, on, on a certain combo. And he was like, honestly, Basil, I love you so much, but I, I, do you mind if I hand you off to my assistant? I think you guys would be a great fit. You, you know, you can learn from her. She can learn from you. Perfect handoff. And I remember him calling me and asking if that was okay, that he put us in touch. And I was like, oh, what? And I'll never forget the first day I went over to her garage to dance with her. She had a CD player that adjusts the pitch of music. And we were dancing to Neo, Addicted to Sex was the name of the song, and at like half speed. So it was like, no. Doom, 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 doom. Uh, like it was the funniest thing, but we, uh, yeah, we, we did a trade swap. So in exchange for me working with her on Marty's combos from uh, many, many weeks in a row, we would do this and she would teach me some locking. So I am very fortunate, very lucky, very proud to say that my first taste of locking came not from the source, but pretty darn close. Tony Basil's one of the original lockers. Locking, uh, uh, obviously, I said obviously, but maybe not obviously, was created by a guy called Don Campbell Lock. Um, and the original lockers are, if you ask me today what's my favorite, who's my favorite dance crew, I would tell you the original lockers. Close second, Electric Boogaloo's, shout out Pete. Um, but I, I fell in love with it from her. She just looks so cool dancing it. Uh, and then I started training. I took several classes from Sugar Pop, who was teaching at Evolution at the time. That was a, a, a weekly, if possible, or every week that he was there, I was there. Then I started taking from a woman called Lockadelic, Celine. Um, she is now back in France. She doesn't teach in LA anymore. Um, but that's one funky woman in her class was drills. We were dancing solid for an hour. There's no teaching eight counts or no talking it from the top. You follow the leader and you dance around the room for an hour straight. And that's when I found funk. Honestly, I didn't have it until Lockadelic's classes. I would imitate Basil a little bit in her garage, but yeah, I, Basil, I guess, would be the dating phase. And then lo taking Lockadelic's class and just jamming with her, we would jam every now and then. That was my like, Oh, we're exclusive. 
I think you might have had another hidden question in there, but I'll leave that. I'll leave that at that for now. Um, okay, Gabby, you are up next. Yes. Hi. So uh, my question is: in an episode, you mentioned Money Monday, uh, and I was curious to know what that entails and if what you could share about that. Ah, oh, thanks for asking, Gabby. Money Monday. Um, was definitely a habit of mine. It's shifted a little bit now because now I have a bookkeeper. I call her Money Michelle because her name is Michelle. Um, so on Money Mondays, actually, this is great timing. Another book that you guys absolutely must read, this is called The Money Book. It was on one of my required reading lists earlier on. The Money Book for Freelancers, Part-Timers, and Self-Employed. There are a couple nuggets of wisdom in this book. One of them is look at finances frequently. Just stop making it a mystery. Stop letting it sneak up on you around tax season. Stop pretending to know like you know how much you have and just look at how much you have once a week. Just get familiar with what's actually going on in there. So I decided um, I would take on a Money Monday. And for me, that meant reconciling receipts. So I, I would keep at the time all paper receipts and I would make sure that what was on the receipt was what was um, debited out of my bank account. So that was step one. And I was shocked actually at how often those numbers did not line up. Some restaurants, some shady business there. Yeah. So, so not, step one is reconciling. Step two was categorizing my expenses. So if I had went to, uh, if I did any Amazon shopping and let's say I bought like um, an adapter for my computer and a new eyebrow pencil. These are actual purchases that I've made in the last 24 hours. Um, although that's one receipt from Amazon, those are actually two different categories of expenses. One of them is technical, then the other one's what I would consider maintenance or personal upkeep. So I got really good at getting specific with my categories. Um, and then I would also pay any bills that were due, anything like that. So step one, reconcile receipts, and then I would get rid of all the paper once I'd like taken photos of them and put them where they needed to go, made sure that the proper amounts were withdrawn. Um, then I would do my categorization, which means taxes at the end of the year just went a lot faster. You don't have to do it all at once, just small bites. Um, and then yeah, paying any bills. That's the general Money Monday. That's gotten a little bit more elaborate since I became incorporated. I am now an LLC. Um, Money Michelle is extremely helpful in all of my finances. If you are looking for a bookkeeper, I would be happy to pass her information along. But yeah, that's Money Mondays in a nutshell. Highly recommended. Cool. Emily Joe, you are up next. What you got? Hi. Okay. Um, so my question is kind of a broad one, but as dancers, um, we're often told to find what makes us unique. Like what's our thing, that one thing that makes you stand out um, and I feel like personally, that's kind of been a struggle for me because um, I like to dabble in everything. Like, I, I just love it all. I don't, I don't ever really know how to choose. I love doing other forms of art even. And even though I might be above average in a lot of them, I feel like sometimes I have trouble honing in and specializing. And so to find that thing, like, do you have any thoughts on how to hone in on a specialty or is that even a necessity or an important thing to do? Or is it good to really diversify? Like, where do you find the balance and how to do that? It is a story. 
that you have to be a specialist. I think that specialists do very well, especially in our world. But the fact that you have to, the fact that you have to be one is simply made up. That's not true. I'm not a specialist at anything except for being me. And I've gotten, and it took several years. Number one, I had to start liking myself and all of my interests. Number two, I had to find out how to fuse them and how to put them together. So that, that might be like, how do you do that? is a really hard question to answer. But I wanna start simply by saying that it's, it's really just a thought that you have to be one or another, that it's not good to be a generalist. Um, I think, again, specialists will do very well at their specialty, but a, a generalist, especially if you really like all the things that you're doing, you're gonna have a very fun and full life um, with all of your many different interests. So I guess my, my stance on this question in general is to start liking the fact that you're a generalist instead of fighting the fact that you're a generalist and then learn to be weaving the, the all of your interests into one thing um uh does that does that help more or less definitely yeah right it's like oh my gosh i love all these things and that's awesome lucky me oh my gosh how do you even get through with life just loving one thing oh feel sorry for you <laughs> um i think when you come at all of your your interests from that place when you really like champion all of them you don't downplay any of them then you then then you, you become a really special entity that way great question okay jess franco you are up next yeah, buddy. Hey. How is your neutral listening experience going for you? Oh my gosh, this is so great. Okay, I'm going to give a little backstory. Jess, Franco, and I. So wait, I did, I don't remember what episode it was, but I did an episode about the overactive listener um, or the overactive like collaborator who's always like, yes, oh my, oh yeah, I love it. Oh my God, that's everything. Oh my God. And you're like constantly nodding or smiling or you know I've, I've gotten some criticism from this in the past that like that i'm a very open book and sometimes that's nice right because you don't have to work too hard to understand what i'm thinking or feeling but it can also um i, I won't say it, it might be damaging and it can just simply not be the most useful thing to do so i've been working on neutrality and jess franco reached out to me and she was like yo same let's go. So we started an accountability group as friends. Every Friday we checked in, we got to get on this, um, about how we were doing with our visual feedback when we're listening. I'm not going to lie, Jess, I have not been doing very well. In this last week, I've been extremely, <laughs> extremely um, expressive in my likes and dislikes for things and statements and situations. Um, but I think that um, awareness of it is still there. And even though I was like, I was conscious, I was like, look at me responding right now. Look at me getting ugly right now. Look at me getting bright right now. I was conscious. I just chose not to get neutral. So I want to share something that, um, I found actually a gift that I received from my, uh, a vocal coach that I was working with in the past, who was all about relaxation I think it's a good place to start anyways. And she gave me this, um, this visual imagery of hanging as if they were little earrings that hang from the corners of my jaw bones, these little sandbags 
So just hang these sandbags from the corners of your jaw and feel your face get a little bit more relaxed. Feel your voice shift to being in a different place. And that definitely helps me not respond with my usual perky cheeks, which kind of strains my neck, which kind of strains my voice. So putting those sandbag earrings on my jaw, jaw rings we'll call them. Um, and then I started hanging one like directly down the back of my head as well. Like the opposite of the princess from the never ending story. What was her name? You know how she wore that cool tiara with that little bead and how all kids at that moment started wearing their mom's necklaces on top of their head because that was the coolest. Um, I imagine a little sandbag hanging down the back of my head and that really helps this forehead area. So to answer your question, Jess, I'm not so great with the neutrality lately. How are you doing with it? I'm doing better in person. I'm not killing it on things like Zoom, where I find myself on mute and I want to let you know I'm participating and I see all these faces and I'm smiling to smile with you. I'm here, you know, so energetically on the mute button, mm -hmm. I find it hard not to visually participate. Right. But in real right. life, I can provide that space for another human. But on the screen, it's a little bit more challenging for me. Awesome observation of the distinction distinction between the two. And I think like all of us here in the room right now, we could practice really quick. Just give like a, a real neutral response. Good freaking luck. <laughs> here we go. Like, how does that look and feel to you guys? Does anything feel missing? Okay, now a gentle smile. And maybe a nod or a floppy thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Okay, right now, all I can, like the, the biggest difference for me is motion. And I think it's normal, um, like, a, like kind of on, on an animal instinct level, motion catches our eye. You know, if we were like scavengers in a forest and a bush rustled over in the corner, we'd go, what? And so our attention goes to things that are moving. So it makes sense that in a, um, in a Zoom conference with, with no audio information, our eyes go, okay, what's, ha what's happening? Where do I get the information? So maybe in a Zoom, it is important to be a little bit more visual with your feedback so that the person on the other side isn't <laughs> just a man walking through a forest <laughs> that's empty. <laughs> um, so maybe, there, maybe there's a, a place for both. I like your, your amount of visual feedback right now. Thank you for it. <laughs> it's something a really cool thing for everybody that might be listening to start practicing like being a neutral place for for the conversation instead of taking a stand one way or the other especially at this time in our world right now a little neutrality given all the polarization a little neutral might be just what the doctor ordered so put put your jaw bags on and um and have a ball with that neutral neutral listening Okay, Sarah, you are up next. Um, hi, everybody. My question is, who were your biggest dance choreography role models growing up? Like, who was it that made you feel just like sparkly inside? And what is it about them that resonated so much with you? Mm -hmm. Okay, I will go back now. Uh, before I moved to L.A., when I was a, a dance, a studio kid, as they call them, at Michelle Latimer Dance Academy in Inglewood, Colorado, I was very inspired by a, a dancer that was older than me by three years, I think, maybe a little bit more, um, named Nina McNeely. 
And some of you may know Nina McNeely because she is still, she's a force to be reckoned with uh, in the dance and choreography realm, but she's also branched into directing. She is a wicked video editor. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised to hear someday she decides to become a recording artist or something. She's so talented and art just, she can draw, she can paint, like art just flows from her body. And that was one of my earliest inspirations and examples that this life was a possibility for me. She made it look so cool and she made it look doable. So Nina McNeely, um, her dancing was full of abandon, um, which to me is one of the most attractive qualities in a dancer. This borderline recklessness that's supported by so much technique that they don't fall off their leg, but it looks like they really should have. That, that's Nina to me. Um, and she was the first person um, really close to me, like in my people that I see every day group that moved to... to, 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 to. <laughs> you don't have to edit that out, Riley. That was funny. That was a good stutter. Uh, that moved to LA and we kept in touch. So I kind of got acquainted with what happens out here and what the life in LA at that time looked like to be a person that moves here to pursue dance. And I was just so curious about it. I remember being really um, excited about it. And since I have her in the room, I'm going to ask my mom (laughs) to weigh in on what you remember about, uh, do you remember me talking about Nina? Do you remember the way that she impacted my life? Absolutely. And I was going crazy when that question was asked because I knew that your answer would be Nina McNeely. Um, She choreographed a dance for you for NYCDA uh, national title. And it Mm -hmm. was dark and dramatic and deep. Um, I remember the makeup that you wore on your face of tears. Yes, totally like that. So it was so dramatic, you guys. I totally knew it had, but it like, she absolutely touched that thing in you that, that is totally there. Um, mm-hmm. And she, I think she was, she's a year older than your sister. So maybe four years older than you. The mm-hmm. other person who I think in my, in my memory. I know who you're going to say. Okay. Nicole. Nicole. <laughs> yeah. Nicole Harshberger. She, yeah. she made you love jazz, I think. Okay. And I'll, I'll agree with you on that. hundred oh, percent. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. That was, that, Nicole is a really important one. I grew up at a dance studio where we had ballet five days a week, all the guest choreographers, all the rehearsals, all the, um, you know, across the floor class and stuff like that. And Nicole Harshberger at the time, she's now Nicole Carr. She uh, taught a late night jazz class on Wednesday nights and all, only the grown-ups got to stay for that class. And I remember when, I don't remember, when it, when it became okay for me to stay for that class. I don't know if she asked me to stay or if you allowed me to stay or if some combination of the two. But once I was allowed to stay for big kid jazz class, it went until like 1030, um, which for a 15-year-old is, <laughs> that's legit. Um, and yeah, she definitely tapped into um, an artist voice inside of me that up until then had been pretty much a a technician and a showman. Um, But it was her and that late night big kid class that helped me feel like I had something to say and teach me how to practice saying it. 
she lit the fire in your belly for jazz. I mean, I could see it. And maybe you said those words or maybe I said them, but she made, she brought you alive in dance. And actually she made you receptive to Nina. Dang, listen to that, look out. You're right, she, yeah, she's the catalyst. Yeah. So cool, hi, Nicole. Oh, awesome, this is great. Okay, does that answer your question in a really cool, beautiful, poetic, and family type of way? Awesome. All right, Noga, you are up next, and I think you're up last. This is it, final question. Oh, hello team, hi everyone. All right, it's words that move me, so I have to bring in the thought model. Do it. The infamous thought model. Do it. Um, I've been doing a lot of work lately on the thought model, specifically on building intentional thought models. And a reaction that I've found is that it feels very inauthentic to me sometimes. So my question is, what advice do you have for embracing intentional thought models? Slash, is that equivalent with embracing new beliefs about ourselves? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what you're asking about. Like, how do you create new beliefs without feeling like a total phony? Yes. <laughs> Great. Okay, I'll do a little, um, uh, a little backstory in terms of context here. What Noga is talking about, the thought model, um, is a model to help you understand and organize the circumstances, thoughts feelings, actions, and results of your life. The thought model was created by a woman called Brooke Castillo. At least that's how I learned about it. Brooke is a life coach and entrepreneur. And um, the thought in the thought model, your circumstances, which are the neutral facts of the world, be they the weather, uh -oh, the weather, other people, um, the temperature outside, the temperature of your body, um, although the Iceman would probably argue with me there, these are things that are outside of your control. Those trigger your thoughts. Your thoughts are just sentences in your head and you can control those. They're different from person to person. They are arguable. They are subjective um, and you can author new ones. So that's what Noga is talking about. In an intentional model, you would work backwards from the bottom line of the model, which is your results. So you would put a desired result there the results, by the way, are simply your experience of the world. Whatever you want to experience, that would go in the result line. Then the second to last line is your actions, simply your behavior. You would fill that line in with what are the actions you need to take in order to achieve that result. So you put all your actions in there. Then you ask yourself, what do I need to feel in order to do those actions? So that's your, the third line there is your feelings. And then what thought gives me that feeling? So... I just, I, sorry, I jumped around a little bit there. From top to bottom, we go circumstances lead to your thoughts. Thoughts trigger your feelings. Feelings lead you to take action or inaction. Your actions give you the results of your life. Working backwards, you have, you have a desired result. You decide what actions you'll take. You decide how you want to feel. You decide what thought will make you feel that way. And I, I understand, especially if you're making a big reach. The example I like to use is, I hate my neighbor <laughs> is, as the thought. And then trying to go to, I love my neighbor. That's just not something that, that one thought model is going to help you do without you feeling like you're absolutely bullshitting yourself. Damn it, Riley. Sorry. We, I really tried to keep it clean. <laughs> um, so 
we talked about this a little bit in ABC, my mentorship program that, that Noga was a part of, the concept of what I call monkey bar thoughts. The thought right now is I hate my neighbor. Somehow I want to get myself all the way over to I love my neighbor. And in between there is I hate my neighbor most of the time. I didn't hate my neighbor for one moment this week, uh, which opens up options for, you know what? Actually, all day today, they didn't really piss me off. Today was kind of a great day, actually, on the neighbor front. And then that, that kind of thought might lead me to take actions that start nurturing a friendly yeah. neighbor relationship. Those actions might get reciprocated. Eventually, yeah. my I hate my neighbor thought gets monkey barred over to my neighbor's not that bad. To, hey, I kind of like my neighbor. To, you know, those kind of like my neighbor thoughts lead to feelings and actions. That's the really important one. You can't just will it. You can't just sit there by yourself thinking it and ha watch it happen. But that thought leads you to take actions that might foster a relationship where you could get to the point where you might love your neighbor. So the answer to your question, Loga, Loga, wow. The answer to your question, Noga, in a very long-winded way, is you've got to start getting better at monkey bar thoughts. It sounds like you're expecting yourself to jump from I hate my neighbor to I love my neighbor. And there's a lot of work and action to be done in between those two. So start, start finding some monkey bar thoughts that you can actually get behind. Is that what... You forgot the monkey bar thoughts, didn't you? <laughs> well, thank you for reminding us all about our monkey bar thoughts. Such an important tool. Um, and, oh, okay, we've got one more question here. This is a good one. Great question. <laughs> what advice would you give to somebody looking to possibly start their own podcast? Oh, I've got a lot. This might be another podcast actually in and of itself. Um, okay. Top three things. Practice before you start. So don't start with episode one. Do like plan on there being four episodes that suck before you put any out there into the world. During those episodes, you're trying out new microphones. You're playing with what happens if this piece of foam goes behind you, uh, behind the microphone or behind you. You're playing with where you put stuff. You're playing with your voice. You're playing with if it sounds better if you script it or if you totally wing it. So I would really encourage, first of all, I encourage everybody to start a podcast because I think it's important for us to all become that familiar with what we th we're thinking. Because you really have to, think and write a lot now that I'm putting a microphone in front of my face every week. I think it's a great idea. Everybody should do it. Um, but definitely practice and play before you get started. Um, and I, also to you, I would say it is a pretty full-time job. <laughs> so you might need to assemble a small team. Shout out Malia Baker. Shout out Riley Higgins. Shout out Andrea Weibel, new addition to the team. Thank you guys so much for your help. Um, yeah, it does. It takes a village. Okay. Oh man, we have one more question. You guys, you, I can't, you don't do this to me. Because uh, you already know I can talk. Ooh, I can talk. Okay, this is a good one. And this one, I, I actually do have a really awesome and concrete answer for. I talk a lot about confidence in my mentorship groups and in my coaching groups. The question is, how can you be confident or what advice would you give to boost self-confidence? I'll just talk very briefly about this, um, although it is something that is super important. I'll just give you a nugget to chew on. 
I think there's an important distinction between confidence and self-confidence. I think that confidence, um, specifically related to tasks like actions, comes from the past, your number of times having done it successfully. I have poured a glass of water so many times that I, and not spilled, some of those many times, enough to have a lot of confidence when I pour water. I can be brushing my teeth while I pour water. I can be having a conversation while I pour water. I can be like doing middle school level mathematics while I pour water and it's not an issue. Um, that's because I've done it a lot. And self-confidence is different. Self-confidence has nothing to do with the past. Self-confidence to me is simply a willingness to feel any feeling without any past experience whatsoever. I directed my first music video recently and I walked onto that set as if I was Steven Spielberg. I was like untouchable because I was willing to be humiliated. I was willing to not know the answer. I was willing to look stupid in front of my crew and say the wrong word for stuff, which I might have. I don't even know, nobody really reacted. So I felt fine all day. Um, but that willingness feels in my body a lot like task-based confidence and it looks a lot like task-based confidence to the outside world um, and people who are confident get treated differently than people who who hide in self-doubt um, so that I think is a really important distinction self-confidence being your willingness to feel anything or try anything and task-based confidence coming from the past of course you wouldn't be confident in doing something you've never done before you've never done it you won't ever do it until you've done it. <laughs> Literally, up until that moment, you will not have done it. So something's got to get you there. It might as well be willingness. Willingness is so important. Um, I do just want to add a quick caveat to my self-confidence speech, which is the difference between being self-confident and being arrogant. To me, self-confidence is I'm good. I know I'm good because I have my own back. I'm good at feeling feelings. Um, I know I can dust it off and try again if I happen to fail. That's self-confidence. It's like, I'm good. Arrogance, on the other hand, is I'm better than you or I'm better than everyone. And that doesn't rank anywhere in my head when I show up on set as a self-confidence person. Not better than anyone. Definitely not. Certainly not on my first day. But um, I, I, I think that arrogance is dangerous because all it takes for you to crumble in that state is simply somebody else who's better than you showing up and then your whole world gets rocked. So um, definitely rather be uh, self-confident than arrogant. And I think so many times we avoid self-confidence because we think it's arrogance and they're actually very, very different. And I don't think anyone in the room right now that I'm looking at could be arrogant even if they tried. You guys are all so compassionate about the outside world, so careful and deliberate in the way that you talk to people and treat people and make art. Um, I, don't, I don't think you could be arrogant if you tried. So you might as well try self-confidence because it's extremely useful. All right, everybody, on that, I'm gonna wrap it up. This was so much fun. I think it went really well. I think I will be doing these more often in the future. Thank you for being part of the first. Go get out there into the world, make stuff and keep it funky. Ugh. Thought you were done?
don't know. Now I'm here to remind you that all of the important people, places, and things mentioned in this episode can be found on my website, thedanawilson.com slash podcast. Finally, and most importantly, now you have a way to become a Words That Move Me member. So kickball changeover to patreon.com slash WTMM podcast to learn more and join. All right, everybody. Now I'm really done. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you soon.